Well, I want to invite you to turn again this morning um, to the book of Hebrews in the first chapter, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 4, and then we'll, we'll settle down in particular in the third verse. But Hebrews uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And let us pray. Father, thank you for the, the time already to exalt and praise and, and glory in your name. And we thank you so much for just the privilege we have of uh, assembling on the Lord's Day and um, ascribing to thee the glory that is appropriate to your marvelous and holy being. I thank you for each one that is here this morning and would pray for the help of your blessed Holy Spirit. Uh, these moments in, in conveying your word, I pray that you would uh, help me. I pray that you would illuminate our, our minds to uh, embrace what you would have for us in your living word, your true word, your inspired word. I pray that you would uh, help us and, and give us all ears to hear what you would have for us and that we pray that would be for your glory as well as for the good of our own souls. And so we just commit this time to thee and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we return this morning to our, our studies in Hebrews. And what we have seen is um, the focus in verses 1 through 4 is that in these last days, God has spoken in his Son. And the final word is in his Son. And as Philip Hughes put it, I think, very well, the author plunges straight into the exposition of the grand theme, the truth of which he is intent on communicating to his readers, namely the uniqueness and finality of the revelation of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. The opening statement then sets the, the tone and introduces the main theme of the whole letter, the, the whole epistle, namely the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ in comparison with the transitory and incomplete character of all that preceded. So what we have noticed in this particular section, there are several qualities about the Son that are brought to the forefront of our minds. And individually and collectively, these qualities bring out the incomparable greatness of his being, and, and this greatness feeds into the propriety or the rightness of the final revelation being in him or through him. It's because of the unique, unmatched excellency of his person. And, and the excellency of his person persuades us of the, the suitability of the final word being in him or through him. Now also, this uh, list justifies in our minds, or I think it persuades us, of the suitability of his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. The way the text puts it, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. As one author put it, the propriety of the son's exaltation to the place of royal honor. Um, and, and so these realities of his being, which include such things as being the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power, making purification of sins. What they do is they justify, I think very profoundly and deeply in our minds, the appropriateness of his being elevated to the place of dignity and honor at the right hand of God the Father. That is, who he is and what he has done make it fitting that he should be or have this place of honor and dignity. Now, so far, what we have uh, considered is God's activity through him. Uh, he appointed him heir of all things, which includes the, a universal inheritance. And the background to that was Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my God, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. So this inheritance corresponds actually to the fact that he created the world. He inherits what he created. It's transcendent. It includes the world to come, which would be the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> we notice he also created all things. So he's presented as the agent through whom God created all things. And there are other passages, as you know, where he is presented as the creator, John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. So, um, and then we see also qualities that um, are in the category of his relationship to the Father. He is the radiance of his glory. He's the perfect manifestation of the being of God. You could say he's the unflawed expression of the being of God. He's the radiance of his glory, then also the exact representation of his nature. Now, this morning, we see two more of these realities that bring out his activity in two different realms. The first is in creation, upholds all things by the word of his power. And the second, I'm calling in the spiritual realm, he made purification for our sins. So this morning... um, I usually don't title sermons before I convey them, but the pithy title would be the same subject continued. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, really what we've already continued, but just adding to it. So we're going to contemplate two further of these realities or two further facets of his being. And the first one, I would have you notice his ongoing work in his creation, his ongoing work in creation. Um, or his ongoing work in the creation that he was responsible for, that is, upholding all things by the word of his power. As William Lane puts it, the description of this son in his pre-existence, he's the radiance of his glory, it's followed logically by a clause descriptive of his relationship now to that creation. So to uphold is to, to keep or maintain in an unaltered condition, it's to cause to remain or last, So it helps us to see his ongoing relationship to the world he's already created. Uphold here, it's in the present tense, which indicates this is continuous, ongoing activity. It's not sporadic, it's not occasional. So under this first heading, I would offer four or five observations that relate to his ongoing activity of the Lord in our world. Number one, just really reflecting, I think, the the, the focus of the phrase It's a sustaining activity, a sustaining activity. Peter O'Brien wrote, the verb here used has the primary sense of sustain or uphold. Another wrote, the creative utterance 
which called the universe into being requires its complement, that sustaining utterance by which it is maintained in being. <clears throat> so he didn't, he didn't create the universe and then leave it alone. As one wrote, not only is Jesus Christ the agent of creation, he also sustains the universe he has made. The Lord is he's not like the God of the deists who have created the world, then proceeded to let it run on its own. He is personally and continually involved in sustaining it. So we see here that the fact that he is of, of his sustaining activity, but then also the need for this sustaining activity so that the universe would not relapse into nothingness. <clears throat> Excuse me, as Robert Martin put it, the, this term upholding can mean bearing up, sustaining, or guiding, managing, controlling. In the sense of sustaining, it conveys the same idea as Colossians 1.17, um, which says that in Christ all things hold together, all things consist. J.B. Lightfoot, a Greek scholar of yesteryear, wrote, um, The Son is the principle of cohesion in the universe, he impresses upon creation that unity and solidarity that make it a cosmos instead of a chaos. And one ancient writer, the word of the living God being the bond of everything holds all things together, binds all the parts and prevents them from being loosened and separated. The word of God is glue and a chain, filling all things with its essence. And, and the word which connects together and, and fastens everything is peculiarly full itself of itself, having no need whatever of anything beyond. Along the same lines, Philip Hughes wrote, moreover, throughout the period that separates the beginning from the, from the fulfillment, the world is dependent on God for the continuance of its existence. Were it not for the sustaining providence and government of God, all would relapse into non-existence. One other older author, it is no less to govern the world than to create it. For in creating, the substance of things were produced from nothing, which in governing, the things that have been made are sustained, lest they should return to nothing. And kind of a good summary statement here by Philip Hughes. Not only then did the universe come into existence through the sun, but the whole created order is sustained in being and carried on to its appointed destiny by his word and power. The sun, so to speak, is the nucleus of creation. In him all things hold together. And the purposeful coherence of the whole is achieved by the word. So this is a sustaining activity, number one. Number two, it's a providential activity on the part of the sun. It's a sustaining activity, but it's also a providential activity. Um, the comprehensive language here, I think, makes that point. It says all things. So it's an all-inclusive kind of providence. It's a providential activity. William Lane wrote the... The new clause ascribes to the Son the providential government of all created existence, which is the function of God himself. This is a, another of those activities, and you see this all the way through here, that presses on our minds the, the deity or the divinity of the person of Christ. The, the, the Son created the universe and all that's in it. Only God can do that. The, the, the Son providentially governs the universe. Only God can do that. In fact, question 12 of our catechism what are God's works of providence? Well, the answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. One of the, sustain, one of the supporting texts is Hebrews 1.3. And then also, excuse me, in the confession, the paragraph on divine providence, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his 
infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And, and again, Hebrews 1.3 is a proof text. So this is an activity that only God can accomplish. So this, this idea of divine providence, powerfully preserving, governing all his creatures and all their actions, that, that, that requires possessing all power, all knowledge, being fully present in all places at all times. It, it's, an, it's another ascription of deity to the being of the Son. He is God. Observation number three is close to observation number two. Uh, this upholding, it's a progressive activity. And what I'm emphasizing here is um, this, this providence has a goal in mind, has an objective in view. As F.F. F. Bruce put it, he upholds the universe as one who carries all things forward to their appointed course. O'Brien puts it like this. The immediate context, however, suggests the additional nuance of the sons carrying all things to their appointed end or goal. The language implies a, a bearing that includes movement and progress toward an objective. <clears throat> and B.F. Westcott, an older commentator, indicated that this term is not to be understood simply as the, the passive support of a burden. For the sun is not like an atlas sustaining the dead weight of the world. So it's not like a guy... You know, whatever you call it when you see these, these big weightlifters and they have the, the heavy weight up above their head and they're kind of shaking like this. It's not the idea that he's just barely holding the world. It rather expresses that bearing which includes movement, progress toward an end. Here the reference is to the manifestation of the divine rule in the carrying forward and onward of all things to the predestined consummation. God creates the world in accordance with his will and purpose, and what he has created, he sustains and directs toward the fulfillment of that purpose. So it's like if you're driving through the area and there's new homes going up and you see the, the carpenters and they're, they're sawing boards and pounding them. It, it's, it's with a goal in mind. It's with an objective in mind. And so our, our Lord's upholding and, and guiding is, is directing all things to a particular goal, to the consummation, which will happen when he returns and the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth. So it's a providential activity. It's a progressive activity. And then this upholding, it's, it's also a, a glorious activity. The ESV translation, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is, all created things viewed as constituting one system or whole um, so when, when we read a text like Psalm chapter 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Or Psalm <clears throat> chapter 8 and verse 1, Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Those descriptions apply equally to the Son as the Father because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. So this is a, a glorious activity on the part of the Son. Uh, you might recall in, in Matthew chapter 8, it's, this is the midst of a storm that's so severe the boat was, was being covered with waves and the disciples they cried out to the Lord, save us, we're perishing. And these are guys, I presume, that knew what it was like to be in rough water, but it was so violent here. And they cried out, save us, we're perishing. He said to them, why are you timid, you men of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They were amazed at this demonstration of absolute immediate command over the violent forces of nature. And I'm persuaded that there had to be some sense in their soul of the transcendent excellency and glory of this person who immediately commands nature and it responds to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Only God has this, this kind of power to command the forces of nature. So this upholding the universe um, that he created shows his glory. It showcases his glory. Well, then, fifthly, this sounds a bit redundant, it's a powerful activity. We've noted that. Um, but I'm simply stressing here that the means by which the Lord of glory upholds his creation is the word of his power. It's done through the word of his power. As O'Brien puts it, Christ's sustaining activity is affected by his, his powerful word, the creative utterance of the Father that brought the universe into being. It's matched by the, the utterance of the Son. As one put it, the word, which is the expression of his will, is essentially, it's a dynamic word. That is to say, it is always and inevitably a word that, that affects its intended purpose. It's sort of like Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, shall, shall not return to me void or empty, without accomplishing what I desire, without desiring in the matter for which I sent it. Another wrote, the son exercises providential rule by means of the same omnipotent word which he employed in creation. The term for word, rhema, denotes that which is uttered by a living voice. It's also his word as proceeding from and filled with divine omnipotence. In the Old Testament, one wrote, what is predicated of God's hand is also predicated of his word. For example, in Isaiah chapter 66, it says, um, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where there is a house you could build for me, where is a place that I may rest? My hand made all these things. My hand made all these things, the heavens and the earth. Nevertheless, Psalm 36 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the word stand in awe of him. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So this, this act of sustaining and upholding is presented here as, as being accomplished by the word of his power. Good summary. His voice, like his hand, is the instrument of his royal power. And so it is with the Son. He bears, rules all things by his powerful utterance. The, the word of his power marks the ceaseless putting forth of his inherent energy. There's no labor nor exhausting effort on the part of him who sustains universal nature as its creator and Lord. For he possesses in himself a power before which everything must bow and the exercise of which is all pervading and constant. So the Son, who is the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, sustains and governs it, and he does so by the word of his power. So in the first place, we see his continued work in creation. Then secondly, his definitive work in redemption. His definitive work in redemption. Moving on to this next ascription that helps us to understand the, the person of Christ. It says, when before he's exalted to the place of God's right hand, it says, when he had made purification 
of sins. When he had made purification of sins. An older commentator, um, B.F. Westcott, wrote, this clause introduces a new aspect of the Son. He's been regarded in his absolute nature, the radiance of his glory, in his general relation to finite being. Now he is seen as he entered into the conditions of life in a world disordered by sin. When he made purification of sins, he's seen as entering into the conditions of life in a world disordered by sin. F.F. Bruce put it like this, as we pass from the cosmic functions of the Son of God to his personal relations with mankind, to his work as his people's high priest, which is elaborated throughout the epistle, the reference here as appears from its fuller development later is to the, the cleansing efficacy, which is a word that has to do with effectiveness. The, the cleansing efficacy of his one oblation of himself once offered. That's an explanation of making purification of sins. One oblation, which is the, something presented in worship. One oblation of himself once offered. So a further aspect of our Lord's accomplishment on the cross, this is connected to when you think of the cross of Christ and what he accomplished in our behalf, one of the things is a purification of sins. Garth Lee Cockerell in his, in his commentary wrote, Purification anticipates the description of Christ's atoning work in terms of a sacrifice that provides inner cleansing from the pollution and dominion of sin and consequent removal of, of the barrier that separates humanity from God. That's especially the focus here. Um, so the purification is presented as something that our Lord accomplished on the cross. It's a redemptive achievement that was carried out. He made purification of sins. And we should add, F.F. Bruce makes the point, He's the only one that could do this. He's the only one that could accomplish this. The underlying emphasis here, however, is that by making purification for sins, the Son of God has accomplished something incapable of achievement by anyone else. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Paul, no one else could accomplish this. And also, um, this making purification of sins is presented as a necessary precursor to his being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So his exaltation here to the place of honor and dignity, it presupposes the success of this aspect of his redemptive work. So he had to make purification of sins before he's exalted to the place of the right hand of God the Father. So this, this place of dignity presupposes the success of this work. Well, I want to develop this a bit further uh, under the second heading, um, th this activity, uh, making purification of sins in, in three respects. First of all, the need for this work of purification, or to put it in the form of a question, what is the need for this work of purification? And, and the answer is the defiling effect of sin, the defiling effects of sin. Purification in, in a moral and spiritual way is needed because of the defiling effects of, of sin. If a garment, you wash a garment because it has been soiled, purification therefore assumes sin has a defiling effect. Uh, the sense of the term, as one put it, is to remove sins and their defilement by cleansing so that the person cleansed is fitted for fellowship with God. <clears throat> so the, the idea here is that de defilement connected with sin 
creates a barrier that precludes having fellowship with God. It's like a a wall that that cannot be scaled. It's a barrier to having fellowship, as we heard this morning, with a God that is infinitely, gloriously holy. As William Lane put it, the defilement of sin affects a a barrier to the uh, approach to God, and that wall must be removed. Now, secondly, the only sufficient way for this barrier to be removed is the blood of Christ. The only way for it to be removed is the blood of Christ connected with the sacrificial atoning death of the person of Christ. The once for all sufficient, efficacious death of Christ on the cross. As one put it here, the writer tacitly enters on a comparison of Christ with the high priesthood of the old covenant. Here the implication of the having made is that his priestly task has been accomplished once for all by an act in the past. So the death of Christ on the cross, it's a one-time sacrificial death. And especially in Hebrews, it's in, it's in contrast to the repeated sacrifices of the blood of animals that we read about over and over again. William Lane wrote, The uncleanness of the people of Israel was acknowledged before the Lord at the altar. It was this defilement that they had to be cleansed by, the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificial animal. Uh, the blood um, covered and obliterated the sins on the altar. For example, <clears throat> excuse me, Exodus chapter 30 and verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Leviticus sixteen eighteen. then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. So, so blood is the necessary exclusive means of cleansing. Now, the need for this, to use the words of William Lane, is that Purity is is an essential condition for participation. He uses the word cultic life. Purity is is a necessary condition for fellowship with the being of God. And and what Hebrews makes very clear is the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's, It's superior to the ineffectiveness of the sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament. The reference is to, one put it, his self-sacrificing death, as is clear from the writer's later development of this theme, in which he contrasts the finality and the efficacy of this purifying work with the sacrifices appointed by the law of Moses. For example, a text, Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So we see here that the need for purification is not just the reality of sin, but because sin has a defiling effect, the means of purification, exclusively the blood of Christ, and then thirdly, the character of this work, the character of this work. And here what I'm emphasizing is that um, this this purification? I don't believe. I kind of I wrestled with this one. I, I don't believe this is a subjective sense in our souls. That there's not. It's not talking about you and I or any sinner having this subjective sense of being cleansed in our heart. That's part of the gospel. 
And it's a glorious part of the gospel. When we get to Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? But that's not the emphasis here. And notice what the text says. He made purification um, not of sinners, but of sins. It doesn't say here he made purification of sinners, but of sins. So it, it is something that he accomplished once for all on behalf of his people when he died on the cross. The Puritan John Owen put it like this, this purging then of our sins, which the apostle declareth to have been effected before the ascension of Christ and is sitting down at the right hand of God consists not in the actual sanctification and purification of believers by the spirit and the application of the blood of Christ unto them, but in the atonement made by him in the sacrifice of himself, that, that our sins should not be imputed unto us. That is, sins that have a defiling effect. All of our sins, which have a defiling effect, effect, are imputed to the person of Christ when he died on the cross. And therefore, he is said to purge our sins and not to purge us from our sins. So this purifying work is presented as an aspect of something that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross once for all. And, and, and the value of it, I, I believe, is it gives you and I the confidence, because sin is a barrier to communion with God. It gives us the confidence of having fellowship with the Father because we know that we are not cleansed from sin, right? We know that we have remaining sin. We know something about the defiling effect of sin. So the fact that he made purification for sins assures our soul that the barrier has been removed and we can have fellowship with the Father on the basis of this particular aspect of what he accomplished in our behalf. Well, I get to this point and there's just nothing left in my notes, so it must be time to pray. Let us look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the glory of Christ, the glory of the cross, and what he's accomplished on our behalf. I pray you would take these considerations and, and cause us to uh, be bold in our approach to thee because of the sufficiency and the success of the work of your son in our behalf on the cross. We thank you not only for his obedience, but we thank you for his success. We thank you that he was uniquely being holy and undefiled, uniquely qualified to um, accomplish this blessed and holy work. I pray uh, it would increase our own confidence in coming boldly to thee, knowing the kind of high priest we have who is sympathetic to us. So apply this, I would pray, to our hearts and to our minds uh, for your glory and for the good of our souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.